Amen. Well, let me ask you if you would to turn in God's Word to John chapter 14. That's where we're going to be this morning, John chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, there are uh, lots of them throughout the auditorium and the fellowship hall and the seats in front of you, hopefully. And uh, I'm not sure what page number, but about maybe three-fourths of the way through the Bible. You'll find the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 14, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. Sermon entitled, Growing from Troubled Hearts to Doing Greater Works for Jesus. And I apologize, it's a bit of a longer, clunkier title, but hopefully it'll make sense as we move along. Growing from troubled hearts to doing greater works than Jesus. And this is actually the fourth sermon in our series from John chapters 13 through 16, entitled Trinity, Mission, and Me, How the Family of God Overflows with His Love, Light, and Life-Giving Work in a World that Hates Him. And so I want to read verses 1 through 14, and then I'll lead us in prayer. But let's hear the living word of our living God. And this is Jesus speaking in verse 1 to his disciples. And he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is the word of the Lord. Please join me as I pray. Our great Father in heaven, you have revealed the riches of your love and your light and eternal life through your word. And so we ask in the name of Jesus that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see the beauty and the power and the splendor of your glory. Father, please help us to hear, to see, and to keep trusting only Jesus. And please help me now to clearly and faithfully proclaim your word for your glory. Amen. 
and amen. Well, many years ago, there was a TV ad for an antacid medicine, and the tagline was, how do you spell relief? How do you spell relief when you get acid indigestion, when you have heartburn, when you have stomach gas? How do you spell relief? Well, maybe some of you can say it with me. R-O-L-A-I-D-S. Yes, Rolaids. Consumes 47 times its weight in excess stomach acid. How do you spell relief? Rolaids. It was a memorable ad, at least for those of us who were around at that time. But I want to ask a question this morning, much more seriously. When you're anxious, and when you're fearful, and when you're burdened, and when your heart is troubled, and you feel overwhelmed and immobilized, how do you spell relief? When external circumstances can seem to crush you like an avalanche, when internal distresses and worries and doubts can flood and consume you, how do you spell relief? And maybe another way of asking it is where or what or who is your place of refuge, your place of comfort? your place of help, your place of hope. How do you spell relief? Well, it should be evident in our text today in John 14 that Jesus strongly and decisively answers this question. And everything that Jesus says in this part of chapter 14 provides the only relief, the only remedy the only cure for fearful, anxious, and troubled hearts. And here's his answer. Here's the main point and the main call of the text, the big idea, and it's this. Trust and keep trusting only Jesus. That's the message of the text. Trust and keep trusting only Jesus. We could say, how does God spell relief? It's T-R-U-S-T-G-J-E-S-U-S. Trust Jesus. Keep trusting only Jesus. Now in chapter 14, Jesus, the good shepherd, is beginning to comfort and counsel his deeply troubled disciples, his sheep. Now, Jesus was the one who had indeed led them into their troubled condition in order to do them good. In fact, earlier at the end of, near the end of chapter 13, in verse 33, his words to them could not have felt more crushing and devastating to them when he said there in verse 33, little children. And notice, by the way, they belong to God's family. He calls them little children. He says, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And those words from him must have hit them like a violent earthquake, shattering their security and their confidence. 
It must have come like a giant volcano erupting in their souls with the red-hot lava of anxiety and fear. And you see, Jesus knew their minds and their emotions were unraveling in turmoil. And so this is the sense of their hearts being troubled that he begins to speak into in chapter 14. Jesus knew them fully and perfectly. And he loved them fully and perfectly, even as he does all of his people. And so he speaks to them and to every single one of us who are easily troubled today in order to comfort and to counsel and to equip us for our mission in the world. Now again, Jesus' call in this passage is strong and it is decisive. And you see it there in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's calling them to faith and he's calling us to faith. This is a call to faith. It's a call to trust. It's a call to have confidence in, to rely upon and to depend fully upon Jesus alone. And it's very significant that this is not an initial call to faith because these men to whom he is speaking, they have already believed in him. They are his own. And yet they need to grow in their faith. And so he's calling them. And he's calling us to keep believing only in him. To keep trusting him even as they and we believe in the God who sent Jesus. Now, a little bit later in chapter 14, verses 15 to 31, Jesus is going to call his disciples and call us to love him and to obey him, which flows from trusting him. But here in verses 1 to 14, Jesus is calling his troubled sheep to trust only him and to keep trusting only him. Now, good shepherd that Jesus is, he feeds his disciples and he feeds us with four reasons, or we could call them four assurances or enticements for why we must keep trusting only Jesus. That's what encompasses uh, the text of verses 1 to 14. Four reasons, four enticements for why we must keep trusting only Jesus. Jesus. And that's going to be the focus of what we look at this morning, these four reasons. So reason number one, keep trusting only Jesus because only Jesus will bring us to the Father's house. That's reason number one. Only Jesus will bring us to the Father's house. Notice what we see beginning in verse two. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now let's pause there for a few moments. The point that Jesus is making here is that he is trustworthy to do what he's promised in bringing his people to his father's house. Now, what is his father's house? 
Well, it's evident from the text. It is the place. It is the location outside of this world where the Father dwells, where the Father lives with His family. And implied there is that He lives with them in perfect, righteous, intimate, loving harmony. Jesus is speaking of heaven, where the Father dwells, the literal, physical place where the Father dwells with His family. This is where Jesus said he was going back in chapter 13, verse 33, the place where his disciples could not follow him right away. And this is the place also that Jesus refers to at the end of his priestly prayer in chapter 17. It's the place where he's anticipating sharing his glory with his Father and with his own forever. And so Jesus says then in verse 2 that his father's house has many rooms. Now the New American Standard Bible says many dwelling places. Uh, The King James Version and the New King James Version, perhaps not so helpfully, says many mansions. What is it that Jesus is talking about here with the father's house having many rooms? Well, let me just make very clear, he is not talking about some multi-million dollar palatial estate on 50 acres. That's not what he's talking about. No, the point that he's making is that his father's house has room for all the redeemed. He has room for every believer. That's the point that Jesus is making. The book of Revelation, in fact, tells us that there will be myriads upon myriads of people in heaven. People from every tribe and tongue and nation of the world. And Jesus' point is that the Father has room where He dwells for every believer, for His whole family to dwell with Him. And then Jesus goes on to say that He is going to prepare a place for you, he says. And what does he mean, of course, by prepare? He's going to this place to prepare for his people. What does he mean? Well, he does not mean that he's going to start building this mansion for you. Or maybe to get your personal suite in the Father's house ready, you know, with furniture and lighting and decorations and the right ambiance for you and everything. That's not, again, what he's talking about. What he means is that he is going, his very going, which we know is by way of the cross, by way of his substitutionary death to bear his father's wrath for sinners who will trust him. His going is the preparation necessary for sinners to be able to dwell in the father's house. In other words, friends, he's going to prepare a place for them by dying for them. And so that in trusting Christ through his death, they, like any of us who trust him as well, will be forgiven and will be cleansed and will be reconciled to the Father and made his children and made a part of his family. And so Jesus prepares a place for us by dying for us. Well then, of course, in verse 3, Jesus promises that he'll come again to take his own to be with him in his father's house. 
And this, of course, is his promise of his second coming. You see, his incarnation was his first coming, and he has completed that mission. He lived a perfectly righteous life in obedience to his Father. He was crucified for sinners. He rose physically from the dead. And then we're told in Acts chapter 1 that he physically ascended into the sky, into the clouds, into heaven. And angels told his watching disciples of that event that he would return in the exact same way. You can find that in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. And so it is that we and all of God's people are to eagerly long for and wait for Jesus' second coming. And you see, the point he's making is that he can be trusted to do exactly what he's promised and to bring us to the Father's house. And so in the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is saying, keep trusting me because I will do what I've said I will do. I will return and I will bring you safely to my Father's house. And do you see, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see what this means very practically for every single one of us? It means that this world is not our home. We need to be reminded of that continually, don't we? This world is not our home. Where's our home? Our home is in the Father's house in heaven, in Jesus. And as long as we're in this world, we're not there yet. And so it means we're not supposed to feel at home in this world. We're not supposed to feel settled in this world. We're not supposed to feel like we belong to this world because we don't. We're made and we're saved to dwell in heaven with Jesus and with our Father through the Holy Spirit. This world is not our home. And so we should think and we should live and we should use money and we should prioritize our time in view of our dwelling in heaven in the Father's house with Jesus. And so in the midst of troubled, fearful hearts that are in turmoil, this is the first thing Jesus wants his disciples to know. To trust him only, because only he will bring us to the Father's house. This world is not our home. Now like many of you, Lori and I uh, periodically will take a vacation. We'll, We'll travel a little bit. And sometimes, like many of you, we'll stay somewhere else like in a hotel or a bed and breakfast or whatever. Now, we enjoy staying in other places, usually. Sometimes it's not always pleasant, but usually it is. But wherever we may stay, we we understand implicitly it's not home. And we try to make it comfortable, we try to make it usable, and we're grateful to be there, but we know it's not home. We know we're just visiting, and by the end of the trip, we know that we're eager to get to our own home here where we live. Well, that should be how we think about heaven with the Father's house. There should be a sense of temporariness to all of our existence here, even as we enjoy it and make use of it and and, and can be uh, glad for it and thankful for it. There should be a deep sense of, you know, this is not home. 
This is not home. I can't wait to get home. And so we're to live in the assurance and anticipation of the day when Jesus will bring us to the Father's house. That's the first reason he gives for why we should keep trusting him. Well, notice then that in verse 4, Jesus makes a statement that provokes a question that Thomas is going to ask in verse 5. Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. And Jesus is deliberately provoking Thomas's question and he's doing so in order to declare even more of his trustworthiness. And so this leads to the second reason we must keep trusting only Jesus. And it's this, only Jesus restores us to the Father. Only Jesus restores us to the Father. You see, it's not only that he brings us to the Father's house, but he also restores us to the Father. And so listen to what we hear, verses 5 and 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now with Thomas's question, he's probably saying what all of the disciples were thinking. They're thinking, Lord, wait a second. We don't have a clue where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? And again, Jesus deliberately provoked this question so he could declare his answer in verse 6. And Jesus' words in verse 6 really summarize the whole theology and point of John's entire gospel. In many ways, these words in verse 6 are the very heart of the gospel, pumping blood and life, as it were, throughout the entire gospel. And what Jesus says in verse 6 has to do with how sinners can come before the holy God and Father. How sinful people can be saved from His wrath and know His favor. And so, Jesus says, only He is the one through whom anyone can come to the Father. And to come to the Father then means to be restored to a right relationship with Him. It means to be saved from His wrath and condemnation because of your sin, which deserves His wrath and His condemnation. To come to the Father means to be reconciled with Him, to be made acceptable to Him. It means to become His child, to become part of His family, to be brought into a permanent, intimate, secure fellowship, communion with the Father. Now notice that Jesus' words in verse 6, they're both comprehensive and exclusive. Comprehensive and exclusive regarding salvation. They're comprehensive. Jesus says that He alone is the way. Against all man-made, futile efforts to reach God, Jesus is the only path. He's the only way to the Father. He goes on to say that He alone is the truth. Against all lies and deceptions and falsehood in this world, He alone is the only truth, reality, found in His words and in His work. 
And he says, he alone is the life, the life against all disease and decay and death that's brought on as a result of sin, both physical death as well as spiritual death in terms of eternal judgment under God's wrath. Against all of that, Jesus says, he alone is the life. And then notice Jesus' words are exclusive. It's emphatic. He says, no one, no one comes to the Father except through Him. Only Jesus restores us to the Father through faith in Him. Only Jesus restores us to the Father. Beloved, what this means is that only Jesus is our salvation. There is salvation found in no one else. And in many ways, in verse 6, Jesus is expanding on how it is He prepares a place for us in the Father's house. In other words, we're not prepared to be in the Father's house unless we're reconciled and restored to a right relationship with the Father. And Jesus is the only one who brings us to the Father's house because He's the only one who can restore us to the Father. And only in trusting Jesus, depending on Jesus and Jesus alone, do we have forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. And do we have His righteousness credited to us. And only in trusting Him do we have peace with God, adoption as His children, hope and joy and eternal life and 10,000 times 10,000 more blessings. So I'd ask you, are you trusting only Jesus today? Only Jesus will bring us to the Father's house. Only Jesus restores us to the Father. As many of you know, if you're going to fly anywhere today on a commercial jet, there is a comprehensive and an exclusive process that you have to go through to get on a plane. And that comprehensive and exclusive process is called going through airport security. If you don't go through airport security, you don't get on the plane. And everyone who flies knows this. It's simply the reality of the way things are. And in similar fashion, friends, only Jesus restores us to the Father. So we must keep trusting Him. It's the reality. He's the reality of the way things are. He and He alone is the way and the truth and the life. Well, just as Jesus made a statement in verse 4 to provoke Thomas's question, now He does it again in verse 7. And this time to provoke an appeal from Philip. And so Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And this statement then brings us to the third reason for why we must keep trusting only Jesus. We must do so because only Jesus brings us to the Father's house. Only Jesus restores us to the Father And now third, only Jesus makes the Father known to us. Only Jesus makes the Father known to us. And this is what we see in verses 8 through 11. 
So Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and the words that I say, I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Philip's appeal here in verse 8, following what Jesus had said in verse 7 about knowing and seeing his Father is really an appeal for Jesus to make some kind of a dramatic, uh, stupendous, and miraculous display of the Father. A powerful display that would sort of once and for all seal the deal for the faith of Philip and the others. In other words, it's as if Philip is saying to him, Lord, we really do want to believe you. We, we really, really do want to believe you. If you could just show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. That'll do the trick, and that's really all we need. Just make some big display of the Father, and we're good to go. That's kind of what Philip is saying. We can almost just imagine Jesus just shaking his head in bewilderment, can't you? And he responds to Philip with a loving, patient, and yet very pointed rebuke when he says in verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and yet you still do not know me, Philip? Then he goes on to say through verse 10, In essence, Philip, in seeing me, you're seeing the Father because me and the Father are one. We're in one another, Philip. We dwell in each other. And so my words are his words and my works are his works. And so then in verse 11, Jesus again calls Philip and the other disciples and he calls us to believe that he and the Father are one as his very works bear witness. It's interesting at the beginning of the Gospel of John in verse 18 of chapter 1, John summarizes all of this when he says of Jesus, no one, in verse 18 of John 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Only Jesus makes the Father known. And so again, we recognize that Jesus provoked Philip's appeal. He orchestrated this entire exchange in order to expose and strengthen the weak, troubled faith of his disciples. And think about it. What Jesus, in essence, is saying to them is, Men, you don't have a vision problem. You have a faith problem. You have a trust problem. They didn't need more revelation than what God had given them in Jesus against the backdrop of all of his Old Testament revelation as well. They didn't need more revelation. They needed more trust. And so those disciples are just like us today, aren't they? Wanting more stupendous, miraculous uh, displays of the Father. Then we'll really believe And the Father says, I've already given you everything you need in my word and in Jesus, the living word revealed in Scripture. 
You see, only Jesus makes the Father known. Only Jesus makes the Father's love and light and His life displayed in His works and words known. Jesus is enough. And so what it means for us is that to see and to know and to trust Jesus revealed in the Scripture is to see and to know and trust the Father. And to look no further than His Word And the Lord Jesus, whom His Word declares, all of God's revelation of Himself, centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is revealed in Scripture, in His Word. It's like the hymn that we sometimes sing says, What more can He say than to you He has already said? What more can He say? It's interesting, shortly after Jesus' resurrection, as we're told in John chapter 20, we meet up again with Thomas, whom we heard of earlier here in chapter 14. Doubting, cynical, skeptical Thomas. In chapter 20, he's heard from the other disciples that Jesus has appeared to them and Jesus has talked with them. But Thomas isn't buying any of it. He's not going to believe it until he himself sees Jesus. Until he himself hears Jesus talk. And until he can put his finger and his hand in Jesus' wounds. Well, a few days later, in an act of great love and kindness, the risen Jesus appears to Thomas. And Jesus lets Thomas see him. And he lets him hear him. And he lets him put his finger and his hands in his wounds. He lets him touch him. And Thomas believes. And he worships him. And then Jesus says in verse 29 of John chapter 20, For every single one of us to hear, Have you believed because you have seen me? Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Well, many years later, our good friend and fellow disciple Peter, he spoke of this blessedness in his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he told suffering, weary, and troubled Christians in verses 8 and 9, he says, though you have not seen him, Jesus, he says, you love him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Blessed are those who have not physically seen Him and yet believe. So beloved, keep trusting and believing only Jesus. He's the only remedy for the troubles, for the anxieties, for the fears of your heart. Keep trusting only Jesus. Because only Jesus will bring us to the Father's house. Only Jesus restores us to the Father. Only Jesus makes the Father known to us. And then there's one more reason that Jesus adds to these, which is intended to mobilize us in ministry. 
and it's in verses 12 to 14, and I'll say it this way, only Jesus rules and provides for our mission in the world. Only Jesus rules and provides for our mission in the world. And so look at verse 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now these words are really a segue into the rest of chapter 14, which we will look at next week, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. But in verse 12, Jesus says, truly, truly. A phrase he frequently uses to add emphasis to what he's about to say. And what he says in verse 12, it has to do with the fruit that those who believe in him will produce. And he says they will not only do the works that Jesus does, but even greater works. You say to yourself, wow, (laughs) greater works than Jesus? What is he talking about? Greater works. Are we going to do greater miracles than Jesus? Well, that's not very likely. Are we going to do greater deeds of kindness and acts of love than Jesus? Well, that's not very likely either. In what sense does he mean that those who believe in him are going to do greater works? Well, the key to understanding what he means by greater works is the causal statement that he makes when he says, because I am going to the Father. You see, when Jesus goes to the Father, following his crucifixion, following his resurrection, it is then that the Holy Spirit will be sent to indwell and empower believers for their, for their mission of bearing witness of Jesus. And so it's significant that in a few moments, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus is going to speak about the coming Holy Spirit. And he's going to have a lot to say about the ministry of the coming Holy Spirit throughout chapters 14, 15, and 16. You see, the Holy Spirit will be sent after Jesus returns to heaven. And so that helps us to understand that the greater works that the the disciples are going to do, the greater works those who believe on Jesus are going to do, are greater works of Spirit-empowered life-giving gospel proclamation. Greater works of spirit-empowered, life-giving proclamation which will bring about the greater advancement of the gospel around the world. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it's interesting, if you know anything about the book of Acts in the New Testament, immediately following, by the way, John's gospel, that's exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts after Jesus ascends to the Father. Jesus has completed his mission from the Father, and he's returned to heaven, 
And he is now advancing the Father's mission through his disciples, through every single one of us, by the Holy Spirit. It's the advancement, it's the extension, it's the ongoing growth of his mission. It's interesting, this Spirit-empowered, life-giving gospel proclamation, I think is illustrated prophetically by Jesus back in John chapter 7. Quite a bit of time previous to the time we're in in John 14 in the upper room. Back in chapter 7, in verse 38, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then the very next statement, John, writing the gospel, explains in verse 39, Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. You see, this ties in. Jesus is speaking prophetically of this coming ministry of the Spirit whereby those who believe on Him, indwelt and empowered by His Spirit, will be giving life-giving proclamation of the Gospel. Living waters flowing from our hearts. God using that to advance His mission, to advance His saving purposes in the world. These are the greater works. And so what we see in verses 12 and 14 is that only Jesus is the one who rules. He's the one who directs and also provides for the mission of His people. The mission of proclaiming the gospel. Of displaying His holy love and of declaring His holy word. And only Jesus provides the necessary resources for us to be faithful in this mission in the midst of a world that hates Him. He provides for us through the Holy Spirit, but He provides for us, as He says right there in verses 13 and 14, through prayer. Through prayer. And in this upper room discourse, this mission discourse, this is the first place, but not the last place, where Jesus is going to talk about the centrality of prayer in the life of the church. And to pray in Jesus' name, it's not a magic formula that you just tag on and then expect things to happen, like a genie popping out of the bottle. If we say the right formula, it's going to happen. No, what Jesus means by praying in His name is to pray in alignment with His person, His work, His words, His commands, His promises, with His mission. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And therefore, we're to keep trusting only Jesus, fulfilling His mission, even in the midst of a world that hates Him, and to do so by praying and depending upon Him, And to do all of this for the glory of the Father. Beloved, what this means is that our lives, our entire lives, are a stewardship from God. They're not our own. We're accountable to our Master. Our lives are a stewardship. And we're made to know and to glorify God through the good works that He has created for us to walk in. 
Not works that save us, but works that flow from the fact that we're saved. And through the mission then within this that He has sent us on. Again, to display His holy love, to declare His holy word through the empowering and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And relying on Him in prayer. And what this means for every single one of us is that at this very moment, this very moment in your life and in my life, whatever our circumstances may be, they are exactly what the Lord of the church has ordained for us. Whatever you're facing right now, whatever you're experiencing right now, whatever defines and describes the circumstances in your life. It's exactly what Jesus has ordained them to be. And it is the context in which He calls you to keep trusting only Him and to keep fulfilling the mission that He has called you and I to. Not separate from those circumstances, but within those circumstances. To be seeking Him, to be pouring your soul out to Him in prayer, to be looking to Him for anything and everything you need to faithfully complete the mission He's called you to. To seek Him and trust Him for comfort, for strength, for wisdom, for boldness, for compassion, for endurance, for joy, for patience, and the list goes on and on. Anything and everything we need. His promise is emphatic. You ask in my name. You ask in alignment with who I am and my purposes and my word and my will. You ask, I give. It's a done thing. In His way and in His time. So do you see how Jesus is just bolstering the reasons for why and even how we're to continue to keep trusting Him? even in the midst of trouble and distress and turmoil. Beloved, relief for troubled, anxious, burdened hearts is found only in trusting Jesus. So how do you spell relief? Where or what or who is your place of refuge, comfort, help and hope? There's so many false sources of relief, aren't there? So many false places of refuge. So many false idols. Drugs and alcohol. Pornography. Food. Money. And all that money can buy. Other people. Your work. Your education. Sports. Your self-righteousness. The praise of people, human counselors with human wisdom, and the list could go on and on and on and on of other false places of relief and refuge and false idols. But do you see in John 14 how Jesus, the good shepherd, so perfectly cares for his sheep? Not only those men with him at that time in history, but for you and I and every single one of us who are His sheep because He's brought us to faith in Himself. Jesus owns us. Jesus loves us. Jesus knows us intimately and perfectly. And He feeds and He waters us with His truth and He leads us and He keeps us. 
He's a good shepherd. He's gentle. He's truthful. He's patient. He's wise. And so in chapter 14, again, mark it well, these disciples had real faith, but it needed to grow. It needed to develop. It needed to mature. And the same is true of us. Beloved, Jesus is exclusively, he's comprehensively, and he is unchangingly trustworthy. Only Jesus will bring us to the Father's house. Only Jesus restores us to the Father. Only Jesus makes the Father known to us. And only Jesus rules and provides for our mission in this world. This is what Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room in John 14. And it's what Jesus speaks to us in this room today. He's risen and exalted and he's speaking to us through his word today. He's given us more than enough reasons to believe and he's given us no excuse for not believing. It's believing God's word in Christ that alone gives relief. So I would just close by asking you, what is Jesus saying to you right now through his word? What is he saying to you today? In what immediate ways is he calling you to trust only him and to keep trusting only him? relying upon Him, depending upon Him, seeking Him in prayer, in what immediate ways is He calling you to trust only Him? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Keep trusting only Him. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, I know for myself how much I need to hear this continually. Whatever else is going on, that is always our need. It's always a faith issue. Are we going to trust you? Are we going to trust you? And most of us cry out and say, we believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Please grant us grace and mercy to trust you and to keep trusting you. And in that trust to fulfill the mission that you've called us to within the specific and particular circumstances that you have placed us. Father, we pray that you would do this for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.